Welcome to another edition of our podcast, Regulation Matters, a clear conversation. I'm your host, Lyne Dempsey. I'm the senior investigator with the North Carolina State Board of Dental Examiners, and I'm the current chair of the National Certified Investigator Training Committee with CLEAR. This podcast is a part of the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR, and we are an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. This podcast is a chance for you to hear about the latest and greatest in our community. As a lead-up to our annual education conference, which is scheduled for September 26th to the 29th in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, this is a preview of a topic that will be presented there. I'm excited about working with our speakers today as we cross multiple time zones and days to bring about this episode, which falls into the compliance and discipline track. Today, I'm joined by Melanie DeLeon, Washington Medical Commission, Kim Acecoff, Australian Health Practitioner Regulatory Agency, and Debbie Tarsus, We're Founds, LLP. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. So today's topic is sexual abuse, achieving zero tolerance and regulators' response to sexual abuse committed by regulatory professionals. I have particular interest in this as our NCIT committee this year has been revamping our sexual misconduct pre-conference workshop, and it too will be offered in Philadelphia. So as I understand it, there have been some significant changes to the framework policies and procedures for handling sexual abuse cases in each of your jurisdictions. Let's start with Melanie. So here in the States, what prompted your organization to revamp the way they process sexual misconduct cases? Well, in the summer of 2016, the Atlantic Journal-Constitution published a series of articles regarding doctors and sex abuse that highlighted their national investigation into how state medical boards dealt with these types of cases. They rated each state how they protected their patients from sexual abuse of doctors based on five factors. These factors included transparency, uh, was complete and accurate information on physician discipline provided to help patients protect themselves, a duty to report, are colleagues and institutions that are aware of potential physician misconduct required to notify regulators, the board's composition were their uh, consumer members included to balance the physician's tendency to identify with their colleagues, criminal acts, were medical regulators and law enforcement made aware of doctors' criminal conduct, and discipline laws. Do state laws strengthen oversight and discipline of problem physicians? Now, Washington rated seventh in the nation in, this, in their investigation overall, but in gathering information to give the journal, I found some disturbing realities about how we had been dealing with sexual misconduct allegations against physicians in Washington state. The most prevalent issue that I came across um, was communications from the commissioners themselves who basically said that the cases seemed to boil down to a he said, she said uh, matter and that sexual allegations because of that were very difficult to um, prove. Now, Washington had recently changed their law requiring all of our investigators to take specialized training to interview victims of sexual misconduct in a manner that uh, minimized the negative impacts on the victim's trauma. And it was because of this training that I began looking at how we could change the way we process cases regarding sexual misconduct allegations against physicians. Well, that sounds very interesting. I guess, you know, you've put some changes in, in place. What kind of impact have you had? 
Well, first of all, we established a, a, a new type of team. We gave it a really cool acronym. It's called the Sexual Misconduct Analysis and Review Team, or SMART Teams. And we developed a new procedure for all cases regarding sexual misconduct. Now all uh, sexual misconduct cases are assigned to a team of reviewing commissioners. One of those has to be a male, and one of them has to be a female. In addition to the male and female combination on the team, one of the team members has to be a clinician, and one of them has to be a public member. So we can get both sides of the aisle and their input on those particular cases. Now, to be part of these SMART teams, all of the commissioners that want to participate um, on these teams have to complete a one-day trauma-informed approach to sexual assault investigative training. So our investigators were sent to a two-day training, and now we send our commissioners to a one-day training. And the training includes an understanding of the neurobiology of trauma, the impact of trauma on victims, and how that trauma may be the best evidence in a sexual misconduct case. So those who have taken the trainings are no longer using the he said, she said uh, argument, and cases that once were determined to be boundary issues are now being considered sexual misconduct, and in some cases, actually, sexual assault cases. So it has really increased their perception and awareness of sexual misconduct. That's great. I really like the idea of the team approach, and certainly the, the demographics of that obviously will have a, a major impact on, on how cases are handled. Um, you know, certainly, I know other states have been looking into uh, how they handle these. I've been through some certain training on dealing with it, and obviously it is a very uh, hot topic right now. Well, let me, let me pose this question to Kim, um, and I guess it's tomorrow there today, right? Yes, it is. It's early morning for me. Well, we, we appreciate you getting up and being a part of this. So, you know, we're having to cross several different areas. Um, so firstly, I guess, what prompted the Medical Board of Australia and AHPRA to commission a review of the use of chaperone restrictions in response to the allegations of sexual boundary violations? Uh, so we jointly commissioned this review with the Medical Board of Australia in August of 2016. Uh, and it follows a series of really very um, disturbing events. So in our legislation, the Medical Board has the power to take immediate action to protect patients and the public pending an investigation. And consistent with the practice of international health regulators, particularly medical boards, uh, the Medical Board has been imposing chaperone restrictions as an interim protective measure um, on the theory that the presence of a chaperone would protect patients while the Board undertook investigations of uh, sexual boundary misconduct allegations. So it became apparent though that this theory really needed to be more closely re-examined in the wake of allegations of indecent assault on multiple male patients by a Melbourne neurologist. Um, this neurologist faced criminal charges following allegations of sexual assault. Uh, initially, when the criminal charges were brought to the attention of the board, he was permitted to continue to practice for eight months with conditions that required a chaperone to be present for all consultations with male patients. Ultimately, he was suspended because we received a further notification, which, sorry, is the term we use for complaints. We re received a second notification from a male patient 
that he had been sexually assaulted behind a pulled curtain while the chaperone was present. So that set of circumstances really made it clear to us that we needed to have a close look at whether chaperone type restrictions were appropriate and sufficient to protect patients while the board undertook a more detailed investigation of their allegations. Gotcha. Now, with the chaperone itself, was that um, was that a cost burden that the practitioner had to um, to pay for in order to have the chaperone there present, or is that something that uh, the medical board um, provided? Uh, no, that was a that was at a cost to the practitioner, and the board did have a documented uh, chaperone protocol, which set out the types of people who would be considered to be suitable as chaperones for medical practitioners, and there was a requirement that the board had agreed to the um, particular person acting as a chaperone, uh, but the costs were actually met by the practitioner. Gotcha. Now, obviously, you know, with this one scenario that you brought up where the chaperone was present but behind the curtain, uh, you know, some type of sexual boundary uh, violation occurred, um, that prompted this review. What were your findings? So essentially the review found that uh, chaperone restrictions are not sufficient to protect the public um, and also that chaperone restrictions don't meet the public's expectations of the protective actions that a board would take in these sort of circumstances. So uh, the reviewer, Professor Mon Patterson, um, looked at the practice of medical boards in multiple jurisdictions. He um, engaged directly with medical regulators in particular in New Zealand, the UK, Canada and the USA. Um, but he also held uh, consumer forums and called for public submissions and received submissions from this patient who had been um, sexually assaulted by Dr Churchyard uh, and from his mother who is a general practitioner um, and from other members of the public making it quite clear that they really didn't believe that the chaperone restrictions were appropriate or sufficient. Um, and so he, he drew a conclusion that there are better ways to protect patients and to ensure that they're properly informed when there are allegations of sexual misconduct being investigated. And so has that also changed the way you guys actually approach investigations of allegations of sexual boundary violations? Yes, it certainly has. There are a number of very specific recommendations in Professor Patterson's report, all of which were accepted by the Medical Board of Australia and by ARCRA. Uh, and subsequently, this report has been shared with the uh, boards for the other uh, 14 professions that we regulate in our national scheme, all of whom have similarly adopted the recommendations. So, as I said, the primary finding was that chaperone restrictions are generally ineffective to protect patients and that we should move away from that regulatory response in these cases and should look more to uh, more reliable restrictive measures such as gender-based restrictions uh, or suspensions of the practitioner. Um, we also accepted a recommendation around the need for more transparency in these matters so that in the event that there is a chaperone, or we've moved away from that term as well, which was found to be a bit archaic, um, and refer to practice monitors. So in the event that a practice monitor is used, um, that it's now 
really important that that person is informed of the nature of the allegations under investigation. Previously, that wasn't really done. And similarly, that patients are adequately informed. So at the time of booking an appointment, that they're informed why a chaperone is required uh, and that they're given a more full explanation of that if they ask for it. And we have also recently given effect to uh, the final of the recommendations, which is to include on our public register of practitioners a link to any published tribunal or criminal decisions in regard to a practitioner because that uh, lack of information about prior history of a practitioner was found to be a significant concern, obviously, for members of the community. In terms of the investigations themselves, I think very much as Melanie described in Washington, we have moved to a position where um, we are a national regulator, but we have state-based decision-makers. Um, part of the review found that decision-making was not entirely consistent between the states. Uh, and so mm. the medical board has now struck a single national committee to deal with sexual boundary notification. It has both practitioner and community members from across the country. They work now uh, with a single team of investigators. So again, we have investigators in each of our locations, but they work as a virtual team. Uh, and they have all had uh, the same training. They trained together, the investigators and the committee members. And again, very much as Melanie's outlined in uh, Washington, a lot of the input into the training program for us came from uh, sexual assault and rape crisis experts to really ensure that our investigators and our decision makers uh, understood from the perspective of victims of sexual assault what was necessary in order to conduct an effective investigation. Well, that, that form of continuity sounds like it would probably make things a lot more efficient and, and better for all parties involved. Thanks, Kim. Um, and, and Debbie, looking at things from a, a Canadian perspective, um, what was the, the Ontario legislation governing uh, the health regulatory bodies change with respect to sexual abuse? In uh, December 2014, the Minister of Health and Long-Term Care appointed a task force on the prevention of sexual abuse of patients and the Regulated Health Professions Act. The Regulated Health Professions Act is umbrella legislation that governs the health regulatory bodies in Ontario. Uh, the purpose of the task force was to review the Regulated Health Professions Act, or the RHPA, to ensure that it's effective in preventing and dealing with sexual abuse of patients by regulated professionals. And the scope of the task force was to recommend ways that this legislation can best ensure that every interaction between patients with health regulatory professionals in relation to issues involving sexual abuse and colleges processes are sensitive, accessible, and timely. The task force was also asked to identify best practices from leading jurisdictions around the world. Uh, in September 2016, the report of the task force, including its recommendations, was uh, released by the Ministry of Health to media and the health regulatory bodies at the same time as the ministry's response to the recommendations. And very shortly thereafter, in December of 2016, a bill was introduced 
which amended the RHPA, uh, and that bill was introduced uh, in December, late December, and then uh, went through the legislative process, and by May 30th of 2017, uh, the bill had been passed and received uh, royal assent. Now, many of the provisions came into force on May 30th, 2017. So some of the amendments to the RHPA included increased transparency, in other words, increased information on the public register of a health regulatory body, a power to make uh, interim orders, um, such as suspensions or imposing terms, conditions, and limitations, at any time following the receipt of a complaint or following the appointment of an investigator. At the time, uh, interim orders could be made, but only after an allegation of professional misconduct, incompetence, or incapacity had been referred for a hearing. Another amendment made by Bill 87 was to expand the list of acts and other conduct that would result in mandatory revocation. So the uh, list of frank acts of sexual abuse for which there already was mandatory revocation was expanded to include uh, touching of a sexual nature of the patient's genitals, anus, breasts, or buttocks, and other conduct of a sexual nature that could be prescribed in regulations. Another area of amendments were mandatory suspension as the new minimum penalty for sexual abuse. So if there was a finding of sexual abuse and there was not a revocation of the member's certificate of registration, then the minimum uh, penalty would be a mandatory suspension. And uh, the, the last amendment that I'm going to comment on was the elimination altogether of gender-based restrictions. So the um, Inquiries, Complaints, and Report Committee, which is basically the screening committee, uh, it would no longer be able to make interim orders that impose gender-based terms, conditions, or limitations. And similarly, a panel of the Discipline Committee uh, would no longer be able to impose gender-based terms, conditions, or limitations as a part of its penalty order. So those are some of the amendments that were uh, passed as a result of the uh, task force report. Wow, that's it's quite impressive, and I know a lot of that is very recent, up until just you know last year. Is the legislative landscape continuing to change in this area, even though we've just kind of gone through all this just recently? Uh, well, yes, it is. Um, some of the provisions that were not brought into force on royal assent were actually brought into force on May first, two thousand um, and eighteen, and. In addition to some of the additional provisions that were brought into force, there have also been made some regulations which support the provisions that have recently come into force. So one of the provisions that uh, came into force on May 1st, 2018, was the addition of a definition of patient. Uh, now, sexual abuse of a patient uh, was always defined in the RHPA, but the meaning of patient wasn't defined. 
So uh, as a result of the provision that was brought into force, combined with the regulation that was made May 1st, 2018, there is now a definition of patient included in the RHPA. So then uh, there's more information that is required to be posted on the public register as a result of a new regulation that came into force May 1st, 2018, and that has increased the transparency uh, beyond the transparency that was already uh, enacted by the amendments to the RHPA that came into force May 30th of 2017. In addition to this increased transparency, provisions that relate to mandatory reporting were also brought into force on May 1st. So now members must report to their professional regulatory bodies additional information that relates to charges that have been um, made against them and bail conditions, and also their licenses and registration in other jurisdictions. So at the same time as there is this mandatory reporting, the regulatory bodies are now required to add some of this information to the register through a regulation that came into force on May 1st, 2018. Uh, and the last that I'm going to comment on is that the a regulation was passed on May 1, 2018 that requires a discipline committee to revoke a member's certificate of registration under additional circumstances, and those relate to offenses under the criminal code where if a member is found guilty of that offense, uh, and it's listed in the regulation, then that member must have their certificate of registration uh, revoked. Wow. Well, it certainly sounds like you guys have made some significant headway in the, just the last two years. Um, can we expect to see this continue in the future as far as more changes? Well, there is an elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room is, relates back to uh, one of the recommendations, one of the controversial uh, recommendations of the Sexual Abuse Task Force, and that was that a new authority that's independent of regulators be established to investigate sexual abuse, and that a tribunal that's independent of regulators uh, adjudicate sexual abuse complaints. Now, in May of 2017, the ministry engaged a consultant to undertake work relating to the recommendations of a sexual abuse task force. And among other things, the consultant was requested to review and analyze the task force's recommendations to establish independent bodies responsible for the investigation and adjudication of sexual abuse matters. Now, the other piece of this puzzle is that amendments were made by Bill 87 that relate to governance matters and give the minister powers to determine the composition of the uh, committees of the regulatory bodies. Those provisions are not yet in force, 
and no regulations have been proposed yet. We're still waiting for um, the advice of the consultant to the ministry, which has not yet been made publicly available. And so we've got this big uh, question mark as to whether or not the government is going to establish independent bodies uh, to be responsible for the investigation and adjudication of sexual abuse matters. Wow, that's, that's also a loaded gun waiting, huh? <laughs> now, um, as I understand it, all three of you will be presenting information together at the annual conference. Any homework our listeners should be doing before the presentation in September? Line, it's Kim. My view is that uh, we would be really welcoming of people bringing to this session their own experiences of these types of matters because I think what is evident from the fact that there is so much work being done in this area is that we're all looking for leading practice and whilst we'll be able to share our experiences from our organisations and local perspectives, it will be great to engage with others in that conversation about what leading practice looks like. Hi, that this is Melanie. Yes. Uh, to, piggy to piggyback off of Kim's presentation, the Medical Commission in Washington had a lunch and learn regarding the use of chaperones, and that was always our go-to sanction when there was sexual misconduct allegations or boundary violations is to throw a chaperone in the room and we have learned through cases, Larry Nasser is one of those, that chaperones don't work and so they've based on what Kim's organization has done has discontinued the use of chaperones as a sanction and I would be very much interested to hear what other states are doing and how they're reacting to that, to the chaperone question. Sure. We actually have used a practice monitor um, in the past, although it's been probably 12 or 13 years since we last had one, uh, a pretty substantial uh, case that we had in North Carolina. Um, but yes, it would be certainly interesting to hear what other, other agencies and regulatory bodies are doing. Well, thank you, Melanie, Kim, and Debbie for your time and being a part of CLEAR's podcast. Uh, this was quite the undertaking with different time zones, and I want to thank each of you for making this happen. As we said earlier, you'll be presenting on this topic in more depth at the CLEAR Annual Education Conference in Philadelphia this September, so we look forward to hearing from you guys then. Uh, thank you again for speaking with us today. And for our podcast audience, thank you for listening. We'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a CLEAR conversation very soon. Um, please subscribe to our podcast on Podbean, uh, it's also available on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or TuneIn, or download the Podbean app and listen to current and back issues there. More information can also be found at our website at www.clearhq.org. Finally, a special thanks to CLEAR staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson, our content coordinator and editor for the program. She works tirelessly to get all the logistics taken care of, so thank you. And once again, I'm Lyne Dempsey, and I hope to be speaking to you again soon.